Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. Following the following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode fifty-one of Poor Three Sixty. And I have the honor of being the last episode from the Journey into Comics Network in 2019. And as you listened to last week's episode, which was right before Christmas, so I hope all of you had a happy uh, holidays for those of you celebrating Christmas and those of you celebrating Hanukkah, which I believe just wrapped up yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, On last week's episode, Nate and I broke down the year, and... uh, then after that, I did uh, cruise with my family, and then I sent off to um, Texas with my wife's family. So I apologize if I'm a little fuzzy tonight. I've been in four states in the last 24 hours, so I'm a little tired. And then today involved a lot of driving as well. So I've been on a plane a lot, and I've been flying. So it's just it's been a bit of a mess here. And I have a bird on my shoulder because. I was away from home for five days, so I had someone come watch, but he did not get the extra attention, so he's a little extra chatty tonight, because we just got home a few hours ago. But uh, there was something I saw while I was away, um, just through the random scrolling through Facebook, that I thought was an interesting way to kind of tie up um, the story. It's not, since we did delve into so much political news Last night, hello Peter, sorry, he really wants to interrupt. But since we delved into so much political news, I thought we kind of take a break from that and talk about kind of something that I realized was interesting about Hollywood and in terms of profitability of movies. We've seen some major movies that have broke a lot of box offices, like Endgame with its uh, like $2 billion in profits. We saw The Joker make almost a billion dollars, or actually make a billion dollars on a super small budget, and how... These movies are highly profitable, but that's not actually the case, or not necessarily the case. So, what actually brought this to my attention, which I didn't really think too much of before this, and honestly, this episode of Poor 360 could almost be a, a foodie special. Um, I'm not sure when the, the next one is coming, but uh, maybe we'll touch on this, and uh, I know when we come back on foodies, that'll be uh, probably uh, what we thought our favorite films 2019 were, but I'm, I'm not sure what that's going to be yet, but... It'll be a little bit about film, but it'll actually be kind of about uh, how Hollywood operates as kind of a business entity. So, this is from uh, nofilmschool.com. Someone shared this uh, on a page I like on Facebook. I thought it was really interesting. So, somehow, the, the article said, somehow 1997's Men in Black is still in the red. Red means it is still in the negative. It has not made a profit, so considered a loss. Obviously, 1997's film, Men in Black, starring Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, was huge success but apparently it's still in the red so what the article goes on to say is that it's wild to think like a movie like men in black that spawned a franchise could still claim it has made no money but creative accounting has rendered it so moving accounting is famously fickle and shady when your agent or lawyer negotiates for the back end of a movie there's little chance you'll ever see it even if that movie is a massive hit the reason is that accounts use lots of convenient math to make it look like their films are not a hit this allows students to avoid paying residuals and take tax write-offs for depreciating assets. It's wild. So recently, writer Ed Solomon took to Twitter to talk about how, in the 22 years and four franchise films since the original Men in Black, Sony still claims that the film is in the red. He tweets, um, he has two tweets, one from the summer and one... Basically, his tweet says, The greatest work of science fiction I've ever been involved with, my Men in Black profit statement, arrived for the holiday. Sadly, it lost six times what it lost last period, Impressed for a movie that hasn't been out in 22 years. Unless it's been sneaking out. Sorry, my bird decided to jump down. Peter, just chill right there for right now. Until I... There. Sorry. He was chirping really loud. So, um... This is crazy, but in case the guarding truth about working on big budget movies. 
It's not just Men in Black. Other filmmakers chimed in with similar stories. Duncan Jones, who um, I believe was a writer or producer for the film Source Code, says, each time I see Source Code play on TV and continue to... is still not receiving... Uh, sorry, each time I see Source Code playing on TV and continue to still not receive 50000 of deferred payment... I marvel how it made a $150 million box office loan on a $30 million budget and still never made a profit. Um, also, uh, Jonathan Goldstein, who I believe was... I don't have to look this up just because I want to make sure I, I have it uh, listed right. Is this the guy? I'm not sure I have the right guy here. Okay, so it's, uh, Jonathan Goldstein is a, he was a writer credited for Spider-Man Homecoming. He's also done, um, such films as, like, Horrible Bosses, Incredible Wonderstone, uh, Vacation, the remake, and was the director of the film Game Night, which was a huge success that I thought. He, uh, also followed up with that tweet, said, according to my latest Spider-Man Homecoming statement, Movie is still losing money despite box office of eight hundred and eighty million dollars. And before you go blaming the guild, it really it's really agents and lawyers who have to keep track of these numbers and keep studios honest. So uh, someone tweeted back, "What well, what is actually the writers guild for then?" It doesn't deal with net profits, and uh, as that's an agency negotiation on a minimums issue, they dealt with residuals of the WAMBA stuff. While trying to know the full story behind Men in Black without seeing the numbers, a few years ago, the accounting sheet from Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix leaked and showed how the studio said the massive movie made no money. So, Solomon says the sheet cites distribution fees, distribution expenses, direct costs, pre-baked participations and deferments, a supervisory fee, interest over budget charts, and other odds and ends that keep the movie in the red. So, it's basically like all the... It's basically what they say... Um, all their expenses, everything they have to do to, like, get the movie out there, um, it lists some expenses as, um, prints, um, reprint, dubbing, editing, advertising, publicity, taxes, trade, freight, charges, all this stuff they go through. Um, goes to say that it's, uh, made, that basically how much money it spent for how much money it made is a wash, at least in terms of Order of the Phoenix, so a non-profitable film. So, uh, and it says that it's just as bad for TV. Uh, Catherine Fugit, who was a uh, writer for Army Wives, which ran for seven seasons, every profit statement from Disney slash ABC shows zero profit and that shows deeply in the red. I include thus that Disney slash ABC is clearly a non-profit entity creating shows and movies for the good of the people. The hardest thing about this kind of accounting is that you cannot argue with the numbers. So you spend and continue to spend tons of money on these kinds of projects. The interest charge inflation goes a long way in creating these deep holes movies have to dig out of, but it's discouraging to see hits buried by this kind of fiscal work. As streamers rally more and more on clicks instead of box office, residuals will have to change. The accounting will always matter, but more and more people are negotiating in different ways to get paid. And it'll be interesting to see how this changes over time and if Men in Black ever makes money. So I saw this, and it really didn't make sense to me, because I'm like, obviously if a movie makes money, it should be uh, profitable. Or if a movie makes some money, it should turn a profit. It should, at one point, the money it made should outweigh the expenses it cost to get it out there. So, um, I have three other articles that kind of talk about the same thing. Uh, but this is another article from The Atlantic. Um, it's from quite a few years ago, this is from 2011, which uh, is early in the decade since we're now approaching the end of 2019. Um, it says, How Hollywood Accounting Can Make a $450 Million Movie Unprofitable. So here's an amazing glimpse into the dark side of the force that is Hollywood economics. The actor who played Darth Vader still has not received residuals from the 1983 film Return of the Jedi because the movie, which ranks 15th in the U.S. box office history, still has no technical profits to distribute. This is the 15th as of 2011, so bear with me here. So how can a movie that grossed $475 million on a $32 million budget not turn a profit? It comes down to Tinseltown Accounting. As Planet Money explained in an interview with Edward J. Epstein in 2010, studios typically set up a separate corporation for each movie they produce. Like any company, it calculates profits by subtracting expenses from revenues. 
Erase any possible profit the studio charges this movie corporation, a big fee that overshadows the film's revenue. For accounting purposes, the movie is a money loser, and therefore there are no profits to distribute. Confused? Imagine you're running a lemonade stand with your buddy Steve. Your mom says you have to share half your profits with your sister, but you don't want to, so you pretend your buddy Steve is actually a corporation. Call him Steve Incorporated. Charge you rent for the stand, the spoon, etc. Dang, mom, I don't have any profits. I had to pay it all to Steve Incorporated. You say when you come home, but the money isn't gone. It's good as yours. It's as good as yours in your best friend's pocket. So, Return of the Jedi is a $475 million lemonade stand. Hollywood can't really work like that, you're thinking. But it does. Last year, the website TechDirt revealed a balance sheet from Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix, which I talked about before, which under Hollywood accounting ended up with $167 million loss, even though it's one of the top grossing films of the last decade. Warner Brothers charged about $350 million in distribution, advertising, and interest fees to this external corporation. So, um, basically... Um, once it got down to it, um, this brings us to the Darth Vader. So Return of the Jedi made almost half a billion dollars, but Return of the Jedi Incorporated still has no profit to pay its famous villain because the movie corp has paid so much of its revenue back to the studio and distribution fees. So here's what uh, actor David Prose, uh, Prowse said to Tech Dirt. I get occasional letters from Lucasfilm saying that we regret to inform you that as Return of the Jedi has never gone into profit, we've got nothing to send you. Now... Here we're talking about how about one of the biggest releases of all time, said Prowse. Uh, I don't want to look like I'm bitching about it, he said, but on the other hand, if there's a pot of gold somewhere that I ought to be having a share of, I would like to see it. So most corporations try to make a profit by limiting costs. Movie corporations manage to record a loss by, by maximizing costs. So I thought that was kind of interesting that basically these are more like tax shelters, that the company proves the loss to just kind of get away with what's going on. So, I have two things, um, and then if it doesn't cover enough, there's, um, I've pulled up the, the Wikipedia article on Hollywood accounting that we can go through, but I think these two next things, Shandra, it's, a uh, how stuff works. So it's how Hollywood accounting works. So you know the old joke about keeping two sets of books, one for the IRS and one for yourself? In Hollywood, it's more like three sets of books. One for the IRS, one for the movie studio, and one for the net profits participants. The people or entities owed a percentage of the profits... Project profits, once costs are recouped, it's no secret that in Hollywood, net profit participants will never see a dime. It's all part of the something known as Hollywood accounting. If you're picturing really glamorous accountants, crunching numbers in the sunshine, well, that's probably an accurate image. But Hollywood accounting is really not about locations, it's about an accounting style that movie and entertainment studios use to give projects profits to themselves. Hollywood accounting can make some of the top grossing films of a given year, or indeed of all time, seem unprofitable. The numbers are laughable. How is it possible, for example, that Return of the Jedi is unprofitable? The movie ranked among the top 20 biggest blockbusters of all time that has earned more than $500 million on a $32 million budget. I understand that between the articles that some numbers can get fluctuated, so I apologize if it seems confusing. So, but getting back to this thing, it says it's still in the red. Of course, the movie made and continues to make money for the studios, but the notion that it's unprofitable is all a part of the system. Entertainment studios tell a story about costs that don't really exist to funnel any profits back to their or back their way. In the end, they get away with it. Despite some high-profile case challenging Hollywood's accounting, most net profit participants never receive any profit. Yet, net points continue to be given freely by the studios. Um, so, the big difference between Hollywood accounting and typical corporate accounting is how people are paid. Shares of the film or points may be given to producers, directors, actors, writers, or anyone who worked on or helped with the production in a significant way. So most players in Hollywood get net points. In other words, they're supposed to receive some of whatever is left after the studio recoups the costs. Which makes sense. Obviously, they're not going to give you, what, a percent of the gross. They're going to want to give you of the net. So they want to make sure that they're not giving you, say, Endgame, which made $2 million. They're not going to make sure they didn't give Robert Downey Jr., 1% of gross profits because that's 1% of $2 billion. They're going to give them the difference in what it costs to make it or the, what it made and what it costs to make it. Now, obviously, I think it cost almost a billion dollars to film Infinity War and Endgame back-to-back -back with the amount, production cost, uh, effects, actors, all of that. So, it's kind of what I kind of was gathering. So, the thing is that people don't 
uh, ever actually see any money from these shares. The reason net points are given so liberally is because they are, by all accounts, essentially meaningless. To ensure there are no net profits in Hollywood, movies are contractually designed to be unprofitable no matter how much they make. It's really a game of paperwork. Each movie is set up like a corporation that's designed to lose money. Within the corporations are shell companies, those exist in name only. They're designed to siphon all the profits from the movie and funnel them back to the studio. These shell companies handle things like advertising, marketing, and distribution. They're going to be set up to cover more general expenses for accountants, managers, travel, and entertainment for studio heads, and so on. So that these fees the studio pays themselves through these shell companies might be legitimate, but they can also be outrageous. A distribution fee of 30-35% of every penny a movie makes goes directly to the studio. The studio charges the film exorbitant amounts for advertising and publicity in addition to financing and interest through shell companies. Every perk that comes with the job of working at a studio, it seems, is paid for by some movie or television show. Executives are said to charge the bulk of their expenses to whichever movie is grossing the most. To be sure, shell companies aren't new. Corporations and other industries use them all the time to play accounting tricks. In other types of business, however, shell companies are typically used to hide losses to make corporate corporations' profits appear greater to shareholders and investors. It's the goal of hiding profits and not losses that make Hollywood accounting unique. Because there's no such thing as net profits in Hollywood. A handful of the biggest players in the industry demand a percentage of gross points or more specifically, first dollar gross. That means these people are getting a cut of the profits before most other costs are recouped. Sandra Bullock is said to have negotiated this rare type of deal for her role in the movie Gravity. She received $20 million up front and 15% of first dollar gross. The actor stands to make $70 million from the deal. So maybe this is how Robert Downey Jr. did it. It's a, of um, first dollar gross as opposed to back end. So... That's probably how they can kind of work around it. It's just negotiated ahead of time to not be disappeared in this whole math. But I've got if you're a low amount of the totem pole, like one of four writers or a lowly producer or someone else who doesn't, who gets back end money, they might just never see that money. Like I said before with the writer of Men in Black. So bear with me as I continue through this. So Hollywood didn't exactly design this accounting system. Instead, it seemed to have evolved this way over time. There are conflicting stories about which star... Um, was the first to buck the original studio system, in which talent was under contract with the studio for a fixed weekly or monthly rate. Rita Hayler said to have had a William Morris agent who, in 1946, got her 25% net profit of her movies along with the script approval. Jimmy Stewart waived his usual upfront cash requirement to act in the 1950 movie Winchester 73 for a piece of the net back-end profit. Because the deals were new, the studios didn't know enough to rate the contracts, and they turned to be lucrative for both actors. In the 60s and 70s, actors, producers, directors, and even writers took part in the gross net profits of hit movies. Warren Beatty, for example, shepherded the production of and played the lead role in Bonnie and Clyde. In addition to earning $200,000 upfront for his work, he also took 40% of gross profits. The movie is not expected to make much money when the deal was struck, but it had since earned more than $150 million. That means he has earned about as much as Sandrick Bullock would make on Gravity nearly 45 years later. Beatty took a risk on the movie and made him a very rich man. His success even prompted studios to take a closer look at the over-generosity of its contracts. Two lessons were learned. Participation motivated those who were involved in the film, and the studios needed to tighten up their contractual reins. In the decades since, Tinseltown has made profit-sharing seem like an enticing dream to more and more people, while at the same time reducing the actual profit shared. So like Beatty, today's power producers, directors, and actors who get first dollar gross might do it to take a chance on a riskier move or an independent film. Or might do it to take a chance on a riskier movie or an independent film. Leonardo DiCaprio is said to have taken a pay cut to act in Inception, but his percentage of first dollar gross earned him around $50 million. Tom Cruise earned, up, earned no upfront compensation for producing and acting in Mission Impossible 2, but his production company received a rare deal for 30% of the film's adjusted gross. Those who don't rate first dollar gross might instead receive a bonus payment regardless of profit. That's the other benefit of Hollywood accounting. No one knows exactly how much anyone makes. It's a system based on rumor and innuendo leaving people in Hollywood speculating about how much everyone else is actually making compared to what's in the contract. Even the distinction for a player who gets first dollar gross can be Substantial in building and maintaining a career. So there are many fun... Um, so um, there are many fun examples of famous blockbuster films that Stu's claim are still in the red. 
Peter Jackson's wildly successful Lord of the Rings trilogy is set to be a net loser despite earning nearly $3 billion at the box office. The original Batman still shows a deficit of $36 million despite earning $411 million way back in 1991. Um, wait, so despite earning $411 million. Then way back in 1991, the Los Angeles Times called it the movie that may never earn a profit. And more than 25 years later, the prediction has apparently come true. Even a small movie such as Big Fat Greek Wedding, which only cost $6 million to make and earned more than $350 million, it sort of cost the studio $20 million in losses. Not everyone in Hollywood supports the local accounting practices. However, over the years, there have been signs that the studio's clever tricks would catch up with them. Filmmaker Michael Moore sued producers Harvey and Bob Weinstein over profits for his hugely successful 2004 documentary Fahrenheit 9-11. The movie grossed more than $228 million in theaters, and possibly twice that, considering DVD, television, and other sales. Moore said he was supposed to get 50% of the profits. The Weinstein said he was a profit participant. Um, Moore earned $9.8 million from his film and sued for an additional $2.7 million in profits. The party settled out of court in 2012 for an undisclosed amount. Writer Art Buckwald won $900,000 from Paramount for his work writing the story treatment that inspired the 1998 or sorry, 1988 Eddie Murphy comedy Coming to America. The movie had made $288 million when Buckwald sued in 1990, but still had not seen a net profit. Hollywood County extends beyond movies to television, videos, books, mu- music, and other projects designed to hide net profits. Actor Don Johnson sued the company Reicher Entertainment in 2010 over a share of profits from the show Nash Bridges. The company claimed it was so expensive to produce that the show was left $40 million in the red. The jury disagreed and awarded Johnson more than twenty-three million dollars when the judge increased, or which the judge increased to fifty million for it to account for interest. The settlement was eventually reduced on appeal. In the end, Johnson said to have received nineteen million dollars. In two thousand eight, Deborah Gregory, author of the popular young adult fiction series *Cheetah Girls*, complained she had never seen a penny of the four percent net profit she was promised by Disney from the movies, DVDs, and merchandising surrounding her book. Side note, I didn't actually realize that the Cheetah Girls show, like, I remember, like, um, Raven Simone and the other girls, I think one of them got really high in Mass Singer, for anyone who watches that, I don't know. But I didn't realize it was based on a book series, so I learned something. And despite the grumblings, there are re- no real signs that Hollywood accounting practices will change anytime soon. David Geffen, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and Steven Spielberg founded the studio DreamWorks SKG... Ah, oh, SKG, Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen. Nice. Okay. In the mid-1990s, with a plan to really change how studio profits would, were shared. But Geffen has since departed, and the studio's had a tough time keeping up with the cash flow. Today, the studio relies on Disney for most of its distribution, and reforming Hollywood accounting no longer seems to get a mention as a part of the DreamWorks story. Indeed, Hollywood outsiders would be hard-pressed to find any vocal critics from within the Hollywood accounting system. But if you follow Insider Podcast interview closely... You can find stories like that of Scott Derrickson, the director of The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Interview with fellow directors Kevin Smith. Derrickson explained how his net profit deal for directing a hit horror film was worth less than a ham sandwich. Regardless of whether the system can be changed, it should be ready for its close-up. Um... Side note from the, the article's author. It says, The most bittersweet part of reporting the story was learning that about David Prowse, the actor who played Darth Vader in the first three films. Um, oh, that was from their previous article. So I won't touch on that. So I think it explains it a lot that um, it seems like it's a really shady system that involves um, movies kind of cheating to not pay people what they're contractually um, required because they can just say it's not profitable because they'll funnel it through shell corporations and kind of fake... Well, just funnel it... Like, basically, they're laundering the money so they don't have to pay their people. So... And this is another article which I think kind of probably touches on a lot of the same thing because it still mentions Return of the Jedi. So, according to Lucasfilm, Return of the Jedi earned $475 million at the box office against a $32.5 million budget. Um, this might go fully into it again... Yeah, it mentions coming to America. Oh, here we go. This is this is something that we haven't really touched on because it did talk about. 
So even Marvel Stanley, the co-creator of the character Spider-Man, has a contract awarding him 10% of the net profits of anything based on his characters. The film Spider-Man, that was made in 2002, had made more than $800 million in revenue, but the producers claimed that it did not make any profit as defined in Lee's contract, and Lee received nothing. In 2002, he filed a lawsuit against Marvel Comics. So that's interesting. So Hollywood accounting is a uh, way that production studios avoid paying actors, models, millmakers, and crew royalties or anything else based on the percentage of profit. Production companies simply overestimate your expenses, and through accounting practices, there is no profit, or at least less of it, at least on paper, even though the movie makes billions of dollars. So how it works in the these uh, three steps. So uh, one, a movie studio creates a production company for the sole purpose of making one specific movie, or sometimes a franchise. The production company charges the movie studio a lot of money, typically an artificially inflated amount, to make the movie. When the movie comes out, the production company is absorbed back into the studio, so when the expenses and other transactions were recorded on paper, the money never actually went anywhere. The costs are then charged out to, for example, CGI companies, script companies, companies owned by actors and directors. It's an efficient way of distributing profit and saving money. If it tanks, it's important to point out that the IRS already took this to court and lost, as it was found that tax evasion wasn't behind it, just accounting practices to suit the way Hollywood does business. So some people argue that the real reason why Hollywood engaged in this form of accounting is to stiff whomever they want out of money. Imagine somebody isn't playing ball. Then whenever, whichever company is paying them suddenly stops making money. They get nothing, even if it's not tied to the gross or net or whatever. It makes it really easy to switch the money taps off and on in any direction. So that's kind of interesting. So... You know what's kind of important when it's actually been, um, when there's actually a Wikipedia article about it. So it looks like um, kind of everything I've touched on, everything that articles I've read have been kind of consolidated into here. But it seems really interesting. Um, here, I'm gonna, I'll read this and then I'll kind of keep talking here. So, Hollywood accounting can take several forms. In one form, a subsidiary is formed to perform a given activity, and the parent entity will extract money out of the film's revenue in the form of charges for certain services. For example, a film studio has the distribution arm as a sub-entity, which will then charge a studio a distribution fee. Essentially, the studio charging itself with some of that's total control over and hence control the profitability report of a project. Another form of Hollywood accounting is a reverse Tobashi scheme in which the studio unjustly cross-collateralizes the accounting of two projects and shifts losses from a flop onto a profitable project by shifting costs involved in involving internal operations. This way, two unprofitable projects are created out of one paper alone, primarily for the purpose of eliminating net participation liabilities. The specific schemes can be ranged from the simple and obvious to the extremely complex. Generally, Hollywood accounting utilizes permanent creative accounting practices such as charging an arbitrary distribution fee from one subendit to another, rather than temporary ones like the Repo 105 scheme, since the measures are meant to permanently distort the bottom line of a film project. Three main factors in Hollywood accounting reduce the reported profit of movie and all have to do with calculation of overhead. So there's production overhead, which studios on average calculate production overhead by using a figure around 15% of total production costs. Distribution overhead, film distributors typically keep 30% of what they receive from movie theaters, or gross rentals. Marking overhead to determine this number, studios usually choose about 10% of all advertising costs. All the above means of calculating overhead are highly controversial, even with the accounting profession. Many of these percentages are assigned with much regard, without much regard for how, in reality, these estimates relate to actual overhead costs. In short, the method does not, by any rational standard, attempt to adequately trace overhead costs. Because the studio's ability to arbitrarily charge among the value chain, net participation points, a percentage of the net income as opposed to a percentage of the gross income of a film, are sometimes referred to as monkey points. The term is attributed to Eddie Murphy, who is said to have also stated that only a fool would accept net points in their contract. Actress Linda Carter on The Late Show with Joan Rivers commented, Don't ever sell for net profits is called creative accounting. Many insist on gross points, a percentage of some definition of gross revenue rather than net profit participation. This price produces the likelihood of a project showing a profit as a production company will claim a portion of the reported box office revenue was diverted directly to gross point participants. 
However, gross participants is a rare bargaining chip allowed by the studios and hence hard to obtain unless the person has suitable leverage deals such as an A-list actor, director, producer who is vital for a project. And we've already touched on the movies um, like Art Buckwald, uh, Return of the Jedi, Coming to America. Um, oh, here we go. Winston Groom's price for the screenplay rights to his novel, Forrest Gump, includes a 3% share of the profits. However, due to Hollywood accounting, the film's commercial success converted into a net loss and Groom only received $350,000 for the rights and additional $250,000 from the studio. So 3% of the profits, which could be based on how much Forrest Gump actually made and continues to make, being because it's due to its popularity, he only made $600,000, which is nothing to sneeze at, but nowhere near the 3% that he was expected to receive. Um, we talked about Lord of the Rings. We talked about Fahrenheit 9-11. Um, let's see what else. Here we go. The Walt Disney Company lost a $270 million lawsuit in 2010 to Celador over accounting tricks used to mask profits on the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire licensed franchise in the United States. ABC artificially deflated fees the network should have paid. Um, the production company BVT and Disney owned Valley Crest, which in turn decreased Celador's share of the revenue. Lost merchandising revenue is also claimed. Um, uh, let's see, 21st century, 21st century Fox was found guilty of using Hollywood accounting practices to defraud the producers and stars of the procedural drama Bones in order to pay $179 million in missing profits with the ruling made public. I feel like I heard about this. I think this was an older thing. Yeah, this is from early this year. Um, so Fox rocked by $179 million Bones ruling, lying, cheating, and reprehensible studio fraud. So this is interesting, and this is before, obviously before the Disney-Fox merger. This is when it was still in process. So in a long run of legal battle over a profit from David Bournet's Emily Deschanel hit, an arbitrator's stunning decision calls out top executives Peter Rice, Dana Walden, and Gary Newman and could alter the economics of hit shows in the streaming era. Um, let's see what it said here. This is kind of a long article, but let's see um, how it ties into the overall article here. So it said, in December 2017, Rupert Murdoch stunned Hollywood by announcing the sale of most of 21st Century Fox to Disney. On this occasion, Murdoch called the $71.3 billion deal, which came as digital streamers were disrupting the entertainment status quo. Netflix and Amazon may now just be this, as important as Brock Selvage never was. Meanwhile, the old studio Vanguard has slowly embraced digital waters. Um, let's see here. The decision made earlier this month, but until now, was a secret pertains to a Fox-produced series, Bones, which starred David Bournais and Emma Deschanel and ran on Fox between 2005 and 2017. But the 66-page ruling by arbitrator Peter Lichtman, which includes Fox executives lied, cheated, and committed fraud at the expense of the show's stars and executive producers. Um, the nearly $200 million award unmounts the second largest in television history after a 2011 jury verdict pushing Disney to the tune of $319 million over profit sharing for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It will not only put Murdoch's Fox sale in a whole new light, but also raises questions about the future viability of Hulu, plus any platform enjoying what's pejoratively known as Hollywood accounting. The will also comes as the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is allowed to stand another mega-merger between AT&T and Time Warner, an example of vertical integration between a distributor of content and a producer. So in a coming decision, Lichtman described how some of Fox's top executives, including 21st Century Fox President Peter Rice and Fox TV CEO Dana Walden, soon to be a top executive at Disney, plus Fox TV chairman Gary Newman, who is leaving Fox, appears to have given false testimony in an attempt to conceal their wrongful acts. According to the ruling, Fox has taken a cavalier attitude towards its wrongdoing and exhibits a company-wide culture and an accepted climate that enveloped an aversion of, for the truth. Slamming the company with a punishment that includes $128 million in punitive damages, or five times the amount of compensatory damages, Lichtman points out that the award is 0.6% of 21st century stipulated net worth. He muses whether it's really enough. In fact, one could question whether a 5 to 1 ratio, given Fox's financial condition and lack of contrition, deserves to deter the wrongful conduct at issue here, or whether it will be considered part of the cost of doing business. What we have exposed in this case is going to profoundly change the way Hollywood does business for many years to come, says John Berlinski, who represents the actors of Kathy Reichs, a forensic anthropologist who authored 
the Temperance Brennan novels that form the basis for the series. Dale Kinsella, on behalf of Josephine, filed a petition Wednesday to confirm the arbitration award. Fox vehemently disagrees with the decision. The company has now tapped star litigator Dana Petroli, fresh off a win, defending the ATT Time Warner merger in an attempt to overturn it. The ruling by this private arbitrator is categorically wrong on the merits and ex- exceeded its arbitration powers, read a statement from 21st Century Fox. Fox now allowed this flagrant injustice, riddled with errors and gratuitous character attacks to stand and will vigorously challenge the ruling in a court of law. So Peter Rice and Dana Walden are highly respectable leaders in the industry, and we have complete confidence in their character and integrity, Bob Iger, chairman and CEO of Walt Disney, said Wednesday in a statement. Disney has no involvement in the arbitration. We understand the decision is being challenged. We'll leave it to the courts to decide on the matter. So what's the origin of this dispute? So back in 2015, those getting involved in getting bones off the ground, including Josephine, Bernays, Deschanel, and Reichs, filed lawsuit in California State Court, claiming they've been defrauded by Fox for their rightful profit participation. The company called out Fox's leading role in a well-documented history of Hollywood accounting scandals, referencing past litigation over MASH, The X-Files, NYPD, Blue, and Cops, and took issue with sweetheart self-dealing between Fox's studio and the network's arms, as well as Hulu, in which Fox had a 30% stake. The Sweetheart Tama took in nearly half a billion billion dollars in its first seven seasons. Josephine says, even says James Murdoch once told him that Bones is perhaps the most profitable show in Fox history. But the series was calculated to be a money loser. That means no profits to share with Josephine and others. Upon the filing of the lawsuit, there were immediately worries by Bones fans that the series would be quickly canceled, but the show survived another couple of seasons. Meanwhile, the executive producers and leading actors were forced to arbitrate the matter, and the case quickly faded from the limelight. But along with other profits, fights over long-running hit shows among them AMC's The Walking Dead, Disney's Home Improvement, and Warner Brothers' Supernatural, the dispute raises big questions about whether profits could ever be expected with one arm of a corporation is making deals with another arm. That's because the studio is responsible for selling the show on the open market. After collecting the money and deducting the cost of production, the studio sends out checks to those entitled to a share of the profits. If expenses outweigh income, the show runs a deficit. But that doesn't necessarily mean... The show isn't making good money, at least for someone elsewhere. It's possible the studio just isn't charging enough for rights to exhibit the shows, whether it's streamed online or broadcast on a television. Streaming platforms hawk subscriptions. Television networks sell advertisements to take additional revenue from cable and satellite companies. Such money doesn't directly go to profit participants. So if studios within the same corporate structure as a streamer or a broadcaster, another handed way for the parent company to derive the spoils from a show to the detriment of the executive producer and stars, may be to undercharge licensing fees to assist sister companies. This is exactly what the Bones profit participants alleged was happening. In arbitration, Fox attempted to justify the low license fees that Fox Broadcasting, Hulu, and Fox's foreign affiliates were paying its studio for the rights to air the series. Bones is a middling show with middling ratings, wrote Fox's lawyer in an opening brief, and that a higher fee from the $2 million per episode paid would have led to the show's cancellation. As has been discovered in the course of the arbitration, though, Fox Studio executives were never really interested in finding out the series' fair market value. We were not allowed to get that information from the network testified Walden, who at the time ran the Fox Studio but not Fox Broadcasting. We asked about the possibility of finding out what the network paid for the similar shows in their middle seasons. Given that the profit participants had self-dealing protection in their contracts, the deals must be as good as marketplace deals. The arbitrator found Walden's lack of knowledge to be either Shocking if true or disingenuous if false, adding, intentionally both Miss Walden and Mr. Newman testified that they engaged in tough negotiations and fought for the profit participants. However, the evidence bellies these assertions. How could they fight if they were not properly armed with the requisite information? What negotiations were there if the information mandated by the contract was not examined, called for, or even investigated? If in the arbitration both sides threw out comparable series for bones, Fox cited Fringe, the J.J. Abrams produced series that was more loved than watched during its run between 2008 and 2013, while Josephine's team held up House M.D., one of the most highly rated shows of the century. The Arbiter eventually accepted House as the yardstick, but the point here is that, according to the Arbiter, studio executives never even attempted to push for information and make arguments when negotiating licensing fees with its sister company. There's no doubt the studio realized that it was not going to win the fight with its affiliate and therefore not only capitulated to the wishes of the network, but also became an accomplice to fraud with respect to the network's desire to limit both the studio's and network's exposure for breach and failure to negotiate in accordance with the operative contractual standards. Sorry, that's a bit of a mouthful. 
So a breach occurred was known to have occurred and was attempted to be pro- to be papered over by the way of release. This gets to the next year, uh, area of the fraud that Fox was found to have committed. During the show's run, Bones' profit participants were continually rebuffed in their attempts to argue for more money. Josephine and Reich signed releases, barring from them challenging licensing fees for the fifth and sixth season upon Fox's word that unless everyone signed these releases, Bones would be canceled. According to the According to Rice, though, Fox had committed contractually to keep the show on the air and knew that Barney's Intentional would never sign such a release. Nevertheless, Fox kept up the impression the stars would sign, even going so far as to include bank signature spaces for the actors in the releases sent to the producers. What's more, as the exact same moment, Bone showrunner Hart Hansen also signed a release, which in itself wouldn't be problematic but for the fact that, unbeknownst to the others at the time, and contrary to Fox's reputation back then, he was in the midst of signing a rich new deal to continue on the series. Hansen was represented by attorney Jean Newman, the wife of Gary Newman, and the co-president of Fox TV. So why the charade? So Lichtman writes, the answer is self-evident. The show is not going to be canceled, and there was never there was there never was an intent to do so. The intent was to continue with the show and at the same time bar any chance for a lawsuit to be brought. As such, an arbiter declared the release of Josephine and Reichs to be voided. The mere threat of a Bones cancellation is deemed to be part of the overall fraud, and all this activity was coming as Fox Entertainment's then-chairman Peter Liguori sent a memo in 2009 to Fox Broadcasting's then-chairman Peter Chernin outlining a legal action plan to avoid paying licensing fees covering the full cost of the show's production. Shortly after setting the plan, Liguori would leave Fox and later become the CEO of Tribune Media, stepping down in 2017. So the ruling reveals something new and startling. After a stint at the Tribune and in the heat of his arbitration, Liguori signed a first-look agreement with FX that provided him contingent compensation far exceeding that of a top executive producer in Hollywood. According to IMDb, Liguori's sole credit is a 1996 film, Big Night. Nevertheless, and with absolutely no public fanfare whatsoever, that he now has a deal with FX, he's apparently getting profit points surpassing the industry's top showrunners. So why and how did this come about? Um, FX apparently issued no press release reporting the, its deal with Liguori, Reviewed in light of these circumstances, the gory legal action plan is far from innocuous. If one juxtaposes the first look agreement with Mr. Lloyd's testimony at the hearing, where Donald plays the snippet of the plan itself, it seems coincidental that Mr. Lagori disappears for nine years from Fox's radar and then magically reappears with a first look agreement seven months before he is to testify in these proceedings, with a deal in hand that most producers in Hollywood have strived their entire entertainment career for. In other words, did Box buy off a key witness? But it hardly ends there. The issue goes beyond, far beyond what Fox, the network, was paying Fox, the studio, for rights to air the show and the company's efforts to do so within legal consequence. So now we have the Hulu swindle. So arguably the most consequential aspect of the arbitrator's decision pertains to Hulu, the video-on-demand service co-owned by Fox, Disney, Comcast, and other studios. At the time. This is early 2019, after all. In his decision, Lickman addresses digital rights given to Hulu. As far back as 2010, some TV creatives suspected they were being cheated out of compensation via the deals networks and studios struck with Hulu. For instance, at a conference that year, Modern Family co-creator Steve Leviton was asked whether he was seeing money from the estimated 2 million people watching the show each week on Hulu. His response, nobody's crying for us, but not yet. It's very confusing because we can't get any answers. It's not me saying network studios are cheating us or stealing from us, but I question the ultimate wisdom of having a show on Hulu. With excessive platforms such as Netflix and Amazon Prime, there is now a healthy market for old and current seasons of TV shows. Nevertheless, Hulu persists in its backbone as recently aired content. So with this context, the Arbiter finds it nearly inexplicable that this Fox studio producing Bones permits parent company to exploit streaming rights and licensing those rights to Hulu without much of anything in return. Leisman finds that this to be clear breach of Fox's obligations to distribute the series in good faith. One Fox executive testified that it was is understanding that Fox Broadcasting got full season stacking rights for Bones, meaning that it could distribute all these episodes of the current season to the show at any given time. If so, then Fox Broadcasting could convey those rights to Hulu. But the arbiter says that this executive's testimony was impeached by others. Additionally, the arbitrator points out that the studio was selling past seasons of Bones to Netflix as further evidence that certain digital rights had been reserved. From 2008 to 2010, Fox Broadcasting licensed the first seasons of Bones to Hulu. In return came what described as a share of speculative advertised revenue. Witnesses could identify any previous time when a studio had granted rights based on a future ad revenue. And one Fox executive testified that in the Hulu negotiations, 
The possibility of getting fixed episodic license fees or a minimum guarantee didn't come up. In his decision, Leitman then addressed what he considers perhaps the most shocking piece of evidence related to the Hulu issues. Fox actually signed both sides of the agreement. Mr. Dan Fawcett signed the Fox content license agreement on behalf of both Fox Entertainment Group and Hulu. Fox had to defend on being both sides of the same transaction. Chernin, former head of Fox Broadcasting and now one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood, was asked how this was possible. He answered, I have no idea. The article concludes, the obvious interference of self-dealing, conflict of interest, and the lack of any arm's-length negotiations leaps off the page. So in the after Lakeman adds, it is undisputed the Fox conglomerate had an equity stake in Hulu, and the evidence established that Fox writ large essentially handed over the digital rights at a low cost to build up a value of the enterprise. The ad revenue shared to the studio amounts to less than a million dollars, yet the Fox Network made more than $70 million revenue for the current season. It's highly unlikely that Bones was the only series licensed to Hulu under possibly fishy economic auspices. The ruling amounts to the opening of a Pandora's box for attorneys in the entertainment industry. It also raises the prospect that licensing content may suddenly become a whole lot more expensive for Hulu should other profit participants in Hollywood make their own challenges. So despite uh, protestations from Vox through the years and an arbitration that paying more for Bones would have ruled, resulted in its demise, the arbiter finds there's no evidence that the broadcaster ever canceled a top 20 hit like this show. And with further word that Bones was driving significant profits for Fox's parent company, Ligman finds had Fox performed its contractual obligations, it would have looked to Universal Produced House as a comparable program, negotiated fairly, and paid the license fees accordingly. He finds only $114 million would have been added to the gross receipts of Bones for exploitation and network television, which resulted in about $15.5 million profits, payments to the executive producers and stars. About $7 million in damages is then tacked on for this, the way the series was unsold to the UK, Italy, and Spain. Or was undersold, sorry. But it's all peanuts compared to the whopping award for Fox giving Hulu the rights to Bones. The arbiter runs through expert analysis, for example, based on the comparable benchmarks of what CBS got for Elementary, Blue Bloods, and CSI. He concluded that Bones should have been deriving a current episodic fee of $685,000 on Hulu, and ultimately gets $10.1 million in actual damages. Then there's a punitive damage for the Hulu arrangement. False promises, fraudulent induced releases, the cavalier attitude of Fox executives, and even a hint of perjury in this case, support a finding of reprehensibility. Writes Leitzman before addressing Fox's contention that the large amount of compensatory damages and the wealth of the stars involved warrant no punitive damages. To suggest that respondents should somehow be grateful for what they did receive instead of focusing on what they were deceived and cheat about of is audacious and, quite frankly, astonishing. Eventually gets the judgment that will go down in the annals of Hollywood history. Lightman writes, as such, in light of Fox's financial condition, a punitive damage award in the amount of $128,455,730 is reasonable and necessary to punish Fox for its reprehensible conduct and deter it from future wrongful conduct. Adding actual damages, prejudgment interest, attorney fees, and costs, the arbitrary cost bring the total award $278,695,778.90. On Wednesday, attorneys representing the executive producers and stars, including Dale Kinsella, Chad Fitzgerald, Aaron Lishkin, and Nicholas Soltman, at Kinsella, Weltman, and John Berlinski, Daniel Saunders, and Candace Frazier at Kasowitz, Benson, Torres, these are all law firms, I don't, went to the Los Angeles Superior Court with a petition to confirm the award. This is a tremendous victory for the Bones profit participants who created and started the longest-running drama series to air on the Fox network. Fox fraudulent conduct toward the series' creators and stars portrayed over many years had been brought to light, and Fox has been held accountable for its action. He adds this award exposing Fox's self-dealing and the harm it visits on profit participants. There is a victory for not only the Bones profit participants, but for all creative talent in the television industry. So yeah, it trails on from there, but basically... It took a lot of legality to try and get some of the profits they were owed, and it shows how this whole Hollywood accounting things can kind of make seemingly uh, can make seemingly profitable films unprofitable, as well as TV shows, books, all these other rights, and these back end negotiations amount to nothing or pennies on the dollar. I remember seeing this kind of. Um, a while back in regards to how there were issues with Happy Days and licensing rights and how the studios and the people who owned the shows would make the money, but the actors and stars who their likeness were being used in, like, uh, board games, casino machines, all that stuff, were not seeing any 
penny from that. So it shows how Hollywood is still kind of up to its old tricks to note that um, they'll make sure that the studio gets all the money and that those big stars get theirs, but the little guy are the ones that actually need the money do not. So I think that'll do it for this episode of Poor360. Um, this is what I was really excited to talk about. I know I haven't... Um, I haven't done, like, a super topic-based show like this in a bit, but it was nice to actually, like, learn something as I was uh, doing the show and learn how this whole Hollywood accounting thing works. And we'll see what uh, next week brings for episode 52. Uh, typically, I don't um, really decide what the show's going to be about until um, a day or two before as I start digging into something. Sometimes a big news thing will come up that'll kind of steer my focus. Um, I won't even thought about talking about the... Um, the incident that happened uh, over the weekend at that church in Texas that was caught on the on the cameras at the church involving a guy open firing and then um, a parishioner who uh, was carrying uh, shooting and incapacitating the the gunman preventing uh, further casualties and this was the further reinforcing the whole good guy with a gun is need to stop a bad guy with a gun uh, argument. So I thought about talking about that for a minute, but I didn't want to kind of doubt, go into that um, down that rabbit hole this close to um, New Year's Day and the holiday. And there's never enough stress with the holidays. You don't need the heaviness of uh, of death and gun rights and all of that at this point. So maybe it'll come back later if uh, as that story develops. So 2020 will bring a lot in terms of politics, the impeachment trial. Maybe it gets underway whenever. Um, the Democrats uh, in the House give the, uh, the articles of impeachment to the Senate to start the trial, but I know there's a lot of back and forth there with negotiating, so we'll see when they come back after the holidays. We have the Democrat, or not the Democrat, we well, we have the Democrat primaries, but we have the primaries, the general election all coming in 2020, then maybe, maybe not a new president in 2021, or at least uh, maybe a re-election. Who's to say at this point? But that'll do it for episode 51 of Poor 360. I want to thank you guys again for listening. I apologize if I'm a little off. It's been a hell of a time, but that will do it. I am your host, Andrew Poor. You guys have a great week.